Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. 30 years of experience, Dr. John Fung is a renowned leader in the field of organ trans- transplantation, including liver, kidney, pancreas, islet, and intestinal transplantation. Dr. Fung's dedication to innovation and delivering the highest level of patient care is recognized through his consistent appearance on the America's Top Doctors and Best Doctors in America list. He's at the University of Chicago, serving as a professor and the director of transplant surgery. Dr. Fung, thank you for taking time to talk. Pleasure, Rabbi. I have long admired you and your work, so it really uh, means a great deal for you to take this time. Um, Well, to jump in right from the start, do, do you believe that more people should be thinking about and considering altruistic living kidney donation? Yes, I think uh, kidney donation from a live donor is one of the oldest forms of donation. It was the uh, source of organs for kidney transplantation before brain death. So the very first transplants that were successful were from living donors. I think the concept of altruistic, uh, undirected donation, in other words, from somebody who just wants to donate, um, does a anonymous recipient in the in the kidney waiting list is really uh, somewhat new. Probably over the last five to seven years has been more and more popularized through mechanisms that allow um, better matching to occur uh, in a more objective way and in a way that is um, more transparent, not only to the recipient, but to the donor and to the general public. So altruistic living donation uh, is truly a way to um, uh, increase the organ donor pool, and particularly in the way that we deal with these um, multiple chains. It's very uh, important in helping to facilitate uh, matching in ways that we had never done before. So I think it's a a very noble uh, effort. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, how would you say that some of these trends have changed in, in living kidney donation? You already started touching on it, but um, also, what do you see? What do you what do you expect to see in the next ten years for, for some possible new trends? So uh, clearly, um, the idea of um, swapping, we call it, that's how it started, which is really means that you find uh, incompatible pairs. Um, where they don't match from say um, you know, couple one and somehow couple two, which is also not compatible with each other are now compatible with the other couple. So that's a simple concept of a swap. And eventually it has led to better matching, uh, better uh, not only for tissue typing, but for uh, 
patients who may be uh, not uh, be what we call sensitized. That means that they have antibodies against a donor. It allows for ABO um, matching. So it increases the opportunity for people to be uh, living donors and to facilitate, as I mentioned, these uh, swaps and chains. Going forward, I think we have a better understanding also of the risks to the living donor. There are some risks, uh, although small, um, but we, I think we're much better able to understand the biology. So some African-Americans, for example, have a gene that makes them more likely to develop kidney disease later in life. And if we can identify these risk factors, then we may be able to protect the donor even more. Um, I think going forward also in the area of desensitization uh, uh, and finding um, mechanisms to even further enhance the opportunity for highly sensitized patients to get kidney transplant, I think is, is down the road. And then Finally, if we have, you know, looking maybe five, uh, 10 or 20 years down the line, um, things like bioartificial kidneys and then, um, you know, tra uh, transplants from um, genetically modified animals, clearly those are kind of way out there. But, you know, if we're trying to see what's going to, what we could currently do now with our uh, source of cadaveric donors and living donors, I think you know, we're, we are making some advances, but we still have 80,000 Americans waiting for the, a kidney in, here in the United States. And so we've got a long way to go. Do I understand that we're moving in a direction as well where there's not a match or not strong compatibility, that there's still a way to make that, that transplant possible? Yes. So matching, uh, when you look at uh, sort of the chance that two individuals will be uh, matched so that their transplant outcomes are going to be better is really um, you know hit and miss. So if randomly, if you were to look at the opportunity for um, two non-related individuals to be matched identically, it's probably on the order of about one in a million. Now you don't have to get into that level of matching in order for a kidney transplant to be successful, you certainly, we have much lower degrees of matching that have been very successful. But there are individuals, particularly women, and people who've had a failed kidney transplant before, where they have become uh, sensitized. They've had a previous blood transfusion or whatever. And it makes it more difficult to find a, a matched kidney. And so the idea of being able to get the largest donor pool uh, available to find the right matching uh, to, uh, to uh, avoid some of the worst kinds of uh, uh, situations where there's an antibody against the donor, those are the situations where, um, you know, as I mentioned, these kinds of swaps, these computer-generated out algorithms looking at large donor uh, um, volunteers, living donors, and cadaveric donors gives the uh, opportunity for the, these highly sensitized patients to get a kidney transplant. That's a, really the only way to do it, and to do it in a cost-effective and really, I think, um, um, predictably successful way. Right. What are some of the possible paths that we could ultimately take in the coming decades to end the need to donate organs at all? Well, clearly, the, the best way to avoid uh, the need for, uh, I mean, to deal with the growing list of patients on the waiting list is to deal uh, with 
uh, finding ways to reduce the incidence of kidney disease. And we know the risk factors for kidney disease include um, hypertension and probably in the, particularly in the African-American population, hypertension, high blood pressure, uncontrolled uh, leads to increased uh, stress on the kidneys and kidney failure. Certain drugs like excessive use of um, non-steroidal uh, anti-inflammatory agents like ibuprofen and those kinds of things can also increase the risk for kidney damage. Certain other drugs, diabetes, which is a growing problem in our increasingly larger American population, is also a risk factor. And then, um, you know, things that are um, maybe genetic factors that we mentioned earlier, uh, those are things that we can start to focus on preventing kidney disease. And that's really, I think, the, the best way to do it. Because of the 80,000 people I said that are met waiting on the kidney waiting list, there are probably 10 times that number of people who actually have chronic kidney disease or are not eligible for a kidney transplant because of other factors. So uh, clearly we have to um, reduce the incidence of end-stage kidney disease first. Great. Now, zooming out to the political and global level, what do you think about the ethical question of opening up a regulated marketplace for kidney sales for transplants? So this is a very good question, Rabbi. Um, there are sort of two camps um, globally that um, some that have advocated that we should explore incentivized uh, donation, and the bulk of the community which has resisted it. Um, you know, I, I can see that probably the bulk of the transplant communities I mentioned are against regulated um, incentivized uh, donation. Um, but, you know, clearly there are incentives that are perhaps not uh, as tangible. Uh, these can be things like um, providing, you know, prolonged health care uh, insurance for donors, um, you know, sort of other benefits that may not be equivalent to cash, but uh, societies that have had incentivized organ donation have uh, found that there have been ethical dilemmas that have been generated. And and if you think about you know, that kind of market, you're going to have a population that are wealthy that are going to ex um, take advantage of the situation, and those that are uh, less economically uh, fortunate are going to be the ones that are brokering their kidneys for, for uh, these incentives. So I think it's, the, while I think you could conceptually come up with a, a, a system which on, on the surface looks um, not as commercialized as you might uh, not want it transplant to be, the problem is that in, an, in, a, in a, these systems tend to become uh, unregulated and other um, breaches in ethics come into play. So just in general, I think there are a lot of challenges to have uh, organ sales or incentivized organ donation. Uh, I, and at least at this point, I don't think we have to because we have not really um, exhausted all the opportunities that we have for both deceased donation as well as living donation. 
Okay, so is, is there is the thinking in the transplant community where the bulk would be opposed that the exploitation of the donor uh, matters more than the potential to save life? Is that rooted in an ethic that do no harm is kind of principle number one? Yes, I, I think that's, that's exactly the way you're saying it, particularly in living donation. Um, no, donor safety always has become, is the primal uh, and the primary um, driving uh, thought when it comes to organ donation or organ transplantation. In the deceased donor um, situation, which makes up the bulk of the transplants in the United States, particularly for life-saving organs like, you know, heart, liver, uh, lungs, um, that issue is not as uh, germane uh, in terms of, you know, organ, obviously, or, or the organ donors are deceased, but um, we still have issues that we want to do in terms of making sure that the, the donor wishes are carried out, family wishes are also respected to some extent, that it doesn't um, negate the organ donor's um, or, or original desire. Um, but, you know, it, when it comes to living donors, the, the, the primal um, directive is no, do no harm. Great, great. Um, so, um, uh, obviously, with, with, with cadaveric donation, there's all kinds of opportunities. But can you walk us through briefly what are some of the other um, living donation opportunities, um, which organs we're talking about, and whether or not you, to what extent you recommend those? Well, kidney makes up the you know 99% of living donation um, when it comes to donated organs, at least in the United States. In parts of the world where uh, deceased donor um, efforts are not as robust as in the West, particularly in Asia, um, then living donors of kidneys is um, really, uh, uh, well, it's, while it's still number one, the second most common uh, types of transplants are living donors for liver transplants. And since you can take a liver and partition it in certain ways, and the liver will regenerate to some extent, um, you can do living donors of, of partial liver grafts for transplantation, uh, particularly adults to children, uh, which has you know, been practiced now for about 20 years. And then more recently, larger pieces of liver from the donor into an adult recipient, which is a little bit more challenging, has a little bit more risk. So in general, the risk for a living donor, uh, liver donor, compared to a living kidney donor, is probably uh, about one in 200 risk of dying um, in a living donor versus a kidney, a liver versus a kidney, which is about one in two to 3,000. So there is a risk um, for both, but the risk is a one-fold magnitude greater for a kidney, for a liver donor than it is for a kidney donor. And what about for lung? Um, that's really kind of fallen out of favor. Um, there have been living donor lung transplants that have been done in the past. Um, generally, the amount of lung that you can remove from a donor is insufficient for one recipient. And crazy enough, you may actually have to have two donors uh, for one recipient, which means you potentially, as they uh, used to say, have the potential for 300% more, more, more mortality. So. It's not uh, practiced, and really lungs in the United States and most parts of the world are not optimally utilized. Uh, there are many more 
lungs that are being discarded than they are being transplanted. Okay. So my last two questions um, relevant to the Jewish conversation on cadaveric donation. The first is that um, uh, when one decides um, if they want to donate organs after the cessation of heartbeat defining death then, or at the death of the brainstem, of course, with cessation of heartbeat, there won't be much left. But with brainstem death, one of the concerns is how will brain death be diagnosed? So what is the medical standard today is in terms of um, when they define brain death? So brain death means there's no blood flow to the brain. It, it's at the level of the cerebellum and cerebrum. So the, the, the cognitive component of the brain, as well as the what they call the cranial nerves, uh, the, the mid portion of the brain that controls movement and reflexes, et cetera, all the endocrine functions, um, no blood to that blood flow to that part of your your body of your brain is uh, tantamount to brain death, and that means that there's no impossibly for that person to be weaned off of the ventilator or life support with any chance of physiologic um, function. In other words, once you remove the ventilator, there's no way that that patient, that person, the donor is going to breathe on their own and, and will eventually die. Without the endocrine component of it, your body will slowly wither away. Um, so if the brain stem is alive or still has blood, I mean, you can still, you know, the, that person, that donor, the body would have no cognitive function, but, you know, still potentially could breathe on uh, on that person on their own. That's not brain death. And that's not, uh, you know, when we do the cranial reflexes and we do these uh, blood flow studies of the brain, et cetera, um, that's not equal to brain death. But when we talk about brain death, all of those functions are gone. Okay, so um, when, you know, obviously you can't return from brain death. So when right. these, stories, these stories pop up in the news every day of someone returning from brain death, does that just mean it was misdiagnosed? Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay. So you're, to be really stringent about declaring brain death, you have to have all these criteria to met. In other words, the, the, risk, the donor or the, you know, the, that's being evaluated uh, cannot have had any type of sedative uh, in the past 24 hours, 48 hours. They can't have any detectable le levels. They have to be warmed to body temperature, that you know, uh, normal body temperature, because hypothermia can sometimes also suppress brain function. Lots of different criteria. And then uh, neurologic exams and or radiologic exams within a given period of time, usually 24 hours apart, uh, with or without EEG monitoring, whatever it takes to define brain death. So if you read these stories, it could be because that person was, for example, hypothermic and had no reflexes when they were cold, but then when the body warmed up, the brain was circulating, uh, you know, blood was getting back to the brain. Then uh, that, that donor, uh, you know, neurologic functions could uh, return to some extent. It, these kinds of uh, stories that you read about, there's always uh, a, a lack of really good understanding of why, what the situation was that caused that misdiagnosis to occur. Great. So my last question is, um, Jewish law has been strongly in favor of donating to directly save life. And the mm -hmm. question of donating to research, you know, donating one's body to medical research, has in some limited cases in Jewish law been permitted where the body afterwards could be buried. Um, this comes up in Israel. 
But in America, is there a possibility in the medical research world of a body being buried after, or is the body by rule always discarded of? Well, so for example, if you know, we don't do this much uh, in terms of like anatomy labs where you have bodies donated for dissection and teaching. Um, but those, I can tell you, those bodies for research uh, or teaching in any academic institution are treated as if they're you know, recently deceased and uh, in a, in a, you plan to either bury, donate, I mean, bury, cremate, or do otherwise. All, all of the, the uh, components that, you know, as part of the research activities are treated as if, you know, that you're, that's your loved one. And, and there's a lot of respect paid to um, bodies that are donated for research. I mean, I can tell you we do a ceremony every year in the medical school uh, that recognizes those, uh, you know, generous donations for uh, that allow us to do our research and teaching. Um, if the I, I don't know the details about you know, if the bodies that are requested to go to be buried in a grave, how they actually uh, transfer well, that. But, but somebody could make that request, and that yeah, could be honored. Okay, Dr. Fun, thank you so much for your time. You are doing the most amazing work in the world. I'm a huge fan. Oh, I'm thank you, Rabbi Shmoli. Uh, and, you know, I have to admit, I tell the audience I'm really impressed with your um, support of uh, organ donation and your own personal uh, travels through that donation process. It's really very impressive. Thank so you. good luck. Thank you. Thank you so much. All the best to you.